Father, thank you so much for the children, and we do pray that uh, they would enjoy themselves with their friends back there, but they would also hear the stories, and that they would become more and more familiar with who you are in those stories, so that one day they would be able to pursue and embrace you and love you and serve you and enjoy you. Father, we pray for the leaders as they teach. Help them to teach clearly and to be an encouragement to the children they're with this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So we are now in Nehemiah chapter 9. We're actually going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10 this morning. Um, where we have come, uh, if you look at the very first uh, verse there in chapter 9, it talks about now on the 24th day of this month. Uh, this is 16 days after we left the last sermon. A couple of weeks ago when we finished up Nehemiah 8, if you'll remember, they started off the first month, uh, the first day of the seventh month. That was where they began reading, bringing out the scrolls, reading the scrolls as they um, are beginning the, fe- the, the uh, feast of the tar- tabernacle or the feast of the booths. Uh, And at that time, as they read on that first day, they began to grieve and mourn and they were crying and all that. And Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites said, whoa, wait a minute. Now you're supposed to be, this is a time of rejoicing. This is a time of celebrating. Because what they were commemorating at that time, as they're looking through that, is the time when God took care of them, brought them out of Egypt, took care of them into the desert, and brought them into the promised land. That's what they were doing. And so for seven days, read back in Numbers and Deuteronomy and all those places, that for seven days, as they read the scriptures, they're supposed to be rejoicing. It's supposed to be a time of rejoicing. And then on the eighth day, there's a solemn assembly where they are um, re- refraining from work, but they are reflecting on God. All right? And so during that time, that is the eighth day of that month. And so here we find ourselves in the 24th day of that month. And it says, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. And the descendants of Israel separated themselves from the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. And while they stood in their place, they read from the book of the new law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Father, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that we would get a glimpse of what the people there in Jerusalem and were going through as they just completed the time of rejoicing, of remembering how you took care of them, and now going into a time where they are recognizing what they have done in rebellion to you and are mourning. And Father, I pray that we would be able to hear from you That we would hear from you, Father, what you would have us to do to apply from your word this morning to make us different than when we came in this morning so that we might be transformed more into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 
So they are coming together. They are looking at this. And, and I want us to quickly, as it, it says they're confessing their sins, and the bulk of this chapter is basically them confessing. It is a prayer that the Levites are le- leading them in. Uh, if you look over in chapter 4, it talks about these Levites that stood up on the platform. And then the Levites, all these guys, they said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And it starts going into this prayer. Now, look real quick just over in the verse 38. Chapter 9, verse 38. It says, Now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. All of this is what they are about to do. And because of what they are about to do, what they are about to pray and all, because of all of that, they are going to, in chapter 10, they're going to make an agreement in writing. They like to write things down. And if you'll remember when Nehemiah was rebuking all the nobles and stuff for uh, adding a usury tax, an interest to the loans that they were making to them because that was against what was taught in the Mosaic laws and all that, because they were doing that, and then the nobles said, yeah, you're right, we shouldn't be doing that. He brought in the priests and everybody, and they did everything in writing. They made an agreement in writing. So they like to do things in writing here. But I want us to see that they were, they were moving from this prayer, this prayer led them, this remembering of this prayer led them into what's going to happen in chapter 10. But just look at what we see in chapter 9 here in the very few verses here. May your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens and the heaven of heavens with all the hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that are in them. You give life to all of them And the heavenly host bows down before you. You are the Lord God. We see in the very first few verses there, they are going as far back as creation. Remember, they're opening up the scrolls of Moses, the law of Moses. They're opening up, and as they've just read, it says they spent a fourth of the day reading and a fourth of the day worshiping and confessing. Now, fourth of the day, it could be anywhere between like four to six hours, depending on if you're saying a fourth of the waking day or the fourth of the whole day, okay? Because some folks like to say, well, it's just while they were awake, a fourth of that day. Well, it doesn't matter. A fourth of the day, four hours is a pretty long time to be reading the scrolls. And another four hours is a pretty long time to be worshiping and confessing. But in this time, as they read through the scrolls and they begin... They begin with creation. And look at next, they, they talk about you are the Lord God, in verse 7, who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. It begins going through the history. It goes on and talks about how he brought them out of Egypt. That God provided the deliverers to bring them out of Egypt. You saw the affliction in verse 9. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. And you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants. And you divided, verse 11, you divided the sea before them. They are praying and remembering what God had done for them from creation through the deliverance from Egypt. And here we start seeing how they are now going to start confessing sins. Looking at, looking at verse 16. But they, our fathers. So let me just go back and read in verse 15. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them in their thirst. And you told them to enter in order of, uh, to possess the land which you swore to give them. But, 
Verse 16, but they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds, which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. We all know the story, right? Where they, they're sitting at the mount, uh, below the mount. Moses is up there and they're sitting there wondering, hey, what? they brought us out here in the desert to die and all that. They're, they're remembering this story and how they appointed a leader. And it says, look at the latter part of this verse 17. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And you did not forsake them. In their disobedience as they, they're remembering this, as they are remembering the disobedience of their father, they use words like in their arrogance. They were stubborn. They would not listen. They refused to listen. All of those things. They said, but you, God, were steadfast in your loving kindness towards us. You did not, you are God of forgiveness and you did not forsake them. Verse 18, it goes back and forth. This is like a tennis match. It's, it goes back and forth between this is what the people of Israel did at that time, and this is how you responded to them. It's like six times we're going to see here. Even when they made for themselves a calf of golden metal, a molten metal, and said, this is your God who brought you from Egypt and committed great blasphemies, but you and your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud. And it goes through verse 19 through the next few verses talking about what we read earlier in verse 15 there. That God was there providing for them in their thirst, providing for them in their hunger, providing for them in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire as they, to guide them. That God was always there with them. Even when they were having a difficult time in the wilderness, God was there with them. Did not forsake them, did not leave them. Verse 20, let's go down to verse 26. But they became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of the oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven. And according to your great compassion, you have you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil before you. You see what the, what's happening here. As soon as God comes to them, as soon as God delivers them, as soon as God forgives them, as soon as God provides for them, it seems like they just fall right back into the same patterns. And, but as soon as they had rest, they did evil before you. Therefore, you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried again to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you rescued them according to your compassion and admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances by which if a man observes them he shall live and if they turn their stubborn shoulder and stiffen their neck and would not listen however you bore with them for many years you see how they're going back they're remembering the stiff neckedness the stubbornness the arrogance the rebellion they're remembering this but they always recall in the story here how God bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets yet they would not give ear therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands Nevertheless, in your great compassion, 
You did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. They are looking at, in this portion of the confession, they have gone from creation through Exodus, and they have gone through when they have did away through judges and the prophets and, and, and had I disobeyed and killed. And, 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 and then when the Assyrians came and the Babylonians came and the Persians came, they are walking right through the history up until present time and they are remembering God's faithfulness and all of this. This is, this is like a thousand years of history they're recalling here. From, from the time of Exodus until the time they are in now, this is like a thousand years of history that they are recalling, that they are saying, our fathers acted arrogantly, but you did not forsake them. Our fathers were stubborn. The people before us were stiff-necked and killed your prophets and all that, but you and your great compassion did not act against them. They were remembering this. And now it comes to their present day, and it says, now, therefore, 32, verse 32 in chapter 9, our God, the great and mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness. Do not let all the hardships seem in, insignificant before you. The hardship they're going through right now, the difficulties that they're experiencing right now. Remember, they've gone through. They, they came together. They, they were wanting to rebuild the walls. They already rebuilt the temple. They had the in, in, enemies around them that were harassing them through the whole process. If you remember the Moabites to the north, the Ammonites to the east, you had the Arabs to the south, the Ashdodites to the west. They were surrounded by their enemies and they were constantly persecuting them. They went from questioning the leaders to harassing, ridiculing, mocking the people and ultimately trying to even get to a point where they're going to declare war. But yet they remained faithful to what they were called to do. And Nehemiah and the people there in Israel were able to complete the wall. And since they were able to complete that wall, they have turned their attentions toward God. Remember, we talked about this earlier. We see that the theme is rebuild and restore. But it's not just the wall and it's not just the temple. It's not just a city. It is to rebuild and restore a people, God's people, back to him. And so here we're seeing a history of how God's people have continually rebelled against them. And now they're back to where they are now, remembering all of that and saying, look at where we are now. Do not forget where we are now. Do not let the hardship seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all of the, your people from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, you are just in all that has come upon us. They we're not going to sit around and blame God for the difficulties they found themselves in. They knew that God was just. God had a right to do, to call, to, to, to let the oppressors come. He had a right to do whatever it is he wanted to do to this rebellious people. And so here he's just saying, you are just in what has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments or your, and your admonitions, which you have admonished them. But they in their own kingdom, which they, which, with your great goodness, which you gave them, with the broad and rich land, which you had set before them, did not serve you and turn from their and turn from their evil deeds. They didn't, of all the things that God did for them, they didn't turn from, they didn't turn from their evil ways. They didn't turn from their wickedness. God, historically, God had done more for this people 
than they deserved is what, is what the people. You are just in how you're in it because of our wickedness. You are right in how you handle this because of our evilness. How we, have, how we have responded to you, God. And he says, we did not turn from, or they did not turn from their wickedness. Behold, verse 36, we are slaves today and as to the land which you have gave our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. They're talking about even though they've been able to rebuild Jerusalem, the temple, the walls and everything, they're still under the authority of the Persians. The Persian empire is still vast and big and strong and, and mighty. And, 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 and if they try to do anything to separate themselves, they know that the people around them are going to jump on board the Persians and try to destroy them because they want to fight them anyway. They just know that they can't cross a line to call, to call the Persian empire on the Moabites or the Ammonites or the Ashdodites or the Arabs. They know that if they cross a line within the Persian empire, that boy, the king is going to come for them. And so all they want to do is to be able to prove that these Jewish people inside Jerusalem here, that these, these people want to separate them from the kingdom. Now they're fortified and they're trying to, that all they want to do is get word back. They've already tried it back in the previous chapters and it just fell flat. It did not work because the king has trust of Nehemiah. The king trusted Nehemiah. And, and so here they're, they're, they're saying that we are in great distress. That what, what we have here. We're still having to pay the taxes. We're still having to give our first fruits to the king. We're still having to turn around and, 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 and provide for the empire. We're still not on our own. We're still slaves is what they're saying here. And then in verse 38, now because of all this, because of all that they just confessed, because of the entire chapter 9 here, because of this, we are making an agreement in writing. And again, they're going to make this official. The first 27 verses, we're not going to read. It's just the guys who were signing it. These are the leaders, the Levites, the priests, and everybody. These are the people who are signing the document of saying, this is what we're going to do. This is an agreement. This is almost like instead of God giving a covenant to them, this is them saying, okay, God, this is what we're going to promise you. This is what we want to do for you. And right off the bat in verse 28, we're going to see this. These are the things, and this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. Now, the rest of the people in verse 28... Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with the kinsmen, with their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and oath to walk in God's law, which has given Moses, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God, our Lord, and his ordinances and statutes. The first thing that we see here is that they are submitting themselves to God's word. I want you to see that there. They, they, are, they are deciding, they're putting it in writing that we are going to submit ourselves to God's word. Look at, the, look at some of the verbiage here when he says in verse 28, and the, the peoples uh, separate themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God. In verse 29, it says that uh, uh, they... We're taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, to keep and to observe all the commandments of God and our Lord and our ordinances and our statutes. They are making a commitment that they are going to keep God's word. They're going to submit to God's word. And honestly, this is, this is the beginning. This is, we all have to do this. We, we need to submit to God's word. But what I want you to see here is not just the knowledge of God's word. 
The words that they use have action to them. It is an application of God's word. When he says that we want to keep, we want to walk in, we want to observe. I remember when, when, uh, when I had served in various places, and I've even done it around here a few times in our association of churches that we have that I work with. Um, uh, I like to ask people to tell me if they know the Great Commission to Quote that verse back to me. And here's what I typically hear sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes this is what I'll hear. Go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and then teach them all that I've commanded you. Is that right? No, it's wrong. They left out a couple of words in there. and says, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. You see, if we just teach them all that I command you, that becomes, becomes an academic exercise. That becomes something that we think about. That becomes something that we just learn. I mean, just imagine if you were in a workplace, and uh, I remember when I was working in a warehouse, and uh, I had to learn how to drive a forklift. And if, if you've never driven a forklift, those things can be pretty daunting when you first get on one, because first of all, this one I was riding, the rear end is the one that turns around, and you can poke a lot of goods, uh, th- those forks, into a lot of stuff. You can damage a lot of stuff if you're not. But they sat there and told me, okay, here's what you do, and here's what you... They told me how to w- drive this thing. Imagine what it would have been like if they told me what to do, and I never did it. And I just never did it. What happens many times is we're not even, in many churches, we're not even told what to do. We're just said, okay, go be Christian. You can imagine what that's like, just like that forklift. Okay, there's the forklift. Go and unload that trailer. You can imagine what that would be like. That would have been a disaster in ha- happening as I would have destroyed all sorts of stuff, wondering where do I put the, the forks? How do I angle them? How much juice do I give to it? How much do I tilt it back? How, where do I put it out here in the racks? And all, all of those things I had to learn over time. And then I had to be practicing to do those things over time. Imagine what it's like as a parent. You say, okay, here's how you wash dishes, little Johnny. Here's how you wash some dishes. And then he never washes a dish. Y'all ever had that happen in your home? You teach your children how to do something and then you kind of hope they learn how to do those things and then after a while you go, hey, what's this? Did you, whose plate is this? Oh, it's mine. I just made a sandwich. What are you supposed to do with this plate? Why did you just leave it out on the table? Worse, why is it on the floor? You just, you, 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 we, we all have those things where we're teaching them something. We want it to be more than an academic exercise. We want it to be more than something we learn in our head and hear what they're saying. As they say, we are going to submit to your word, oh God. They, they use words like walk in, observe, to keep. Those are things that are action words that you're actually going to be applying and doing God's word. So here they're, they're, starting to, they're, they're, they're starting to lay a foundation of their obligations to God, of what they're wanting to do before God, of submitting to God's word. The second thing that we see here, it's also up in verse 28. We read it just, we went by it just for a little bit. It says, uh, now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands... And then down in verse 30, and that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Second thing they did here was, first thing was submit to God's word. The second thing was to separate themselves from this world. 
Now, this is speaking specifically about marriage. They were having an issue about this whole mixed marriage thing going on when, especially after they came back from the exile, when they were coming back from Babylon and when the Persians said, you can go back, and they found that there were people that were marrying folks, you know, the Moabites and the, and, and, and the Ammonites. They, the, the people were just marrying folks all over the place. But I, want, I, I do not believe that what this is saying here is about mixed marriages, about being, it's not about race. I do not believe it is about race. We see several examples throughout the scripture where some of God's people married across, people from other people groups, from other peoples outside of Israel. We know that, that uh, if you look at Numbers 12, we see that Moses... It says he married a Cushite woman. Now, some translations might say, go to say that that is a, an Ethiopian woman, a dark-skinned woman. Uh, it, it might be that. It might make, be making a reference to just a Cushite being a part of a region where the Midianites lived, and that could be a reference to Zipporah. It doesn't matter, but what, what I want us to see here is that in Numbers 12, Miriam is objecting to the fact that Moses has married a Cushite woman, and God rebukes Miriam for that. He rebukes her for that. We know that Ruth, being a Moabite, she married Boaz, an Israelite. We, we, we see several examples where strangers and foreigners and outsiders are considered a part of Israel. We know in Deuteronomy, I've, I've got several verses here. I'm not going to read them all. But in Deuteronomy 31, 10 through 13, it talks about strangers being a part of all Israel. Ezekiel 47, 21 through 23, it talks about foreigners considered as native born of Israel. These foreigners that they're talking about here. In Isaiah 58, 3, 6, a foreigner will be joyful in my house. There are references across the board here. And, and, and what we see that, for example, in Ruth, Ruth actually says, if you know the story, she's married to the son of a Jewish lady and sons die Ruth and her friend are told to go back to their people. And her friend goes back to her people, but Ruth looks at this lady and says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And what we see throughout all of this, what we see throughout all of this, through those Old Testament passages I just read and others, is that the common thread seems to be inclusive of any and all of these things. They hold fast the covenants, they keep the Sabbath, they obey the word of God, they fear the Lord God. They submit to God. Circumcision definitely is a physical part of that. But all of these things are talking about these foreigners and these outsiders and these strangers committing to God, the one true God. And so I don't believe this is talking about, you know, a white man can't marry a black woman. I don't believe that's what it's saying. What I am thinking, though, is that we need to be very careful about who we are attaching ourselves to in a wide variety of ways. Whether it's in relationships or in business or anything, we need to be careful about who we're attaching ourselves to across the board. We need to be wary of outsiders having in. We, we saw it in Solomon, right? Solomon married a whole lot of women. They were from the outside, and they caused him to make some pretty bad decisions. So we need to be very, very careful in all of our relationships and who we do business with and, what, and, 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 and how much influence they have in on us. We need to be very careful. And I believe that's what it's talking about here when he's talking about separating yourselves from this world, separating yourselves from this people. And so 
The first thing they did is they submitted to God's word. The second thing they did, they separated themselves from the word. And the third thing they did, and this is the large portion of this next chapter, starting there in verse 32, is that they began to support God's work. Now, I don't want people to start tuning me out because I said support God's work. Because, oh God, here he goes. Pastor's going to start talking about money. First of all, I believe it's more than about money. It's about your time. It's about your talents. It's about your treasures, yes. But I believe what he's, what, what he's, what he's doing here is, he, what these people are doing here is recommitting back to something that they had been given to them years ago in the, in the various covenants that God had given Moses and Abraham. All of these covenants and the direction they were given and how they handled tithes. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, a tithe there are three different tithes, and, and annually it was like 23 and a third percent that you were to give to the, the Lord. One tithe was over a three-year period, but two other tithes were annually. So you can imagine if there was this kind of a legalistic way of doing things, man, you owe 23 and a third percent of your income to the church. That's not the way this, that's not what we believe. That's not what this is talking about. What I believe personally is that it all belongs to God anyway. That's just my personal opinion. That all, all that I have belongs to God. And I, when I sit down and I'm thinking about buying something or I'm thinking about doing something with my money, I need to be asking God, you know, God, is this something that's going to honor you? Is this something that's going to bring glory to your name? And so here he starts off in verse 32. We, we also place ourselves under the obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our Lord. And, and, and listen, there's like four different things they're talking about doing here. One third of a shekel for the service of the house of the Lord. Uh, the next one is, look down in verse 34. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people, that they might bring it to the house of God according to our father's households and fix times annually to burn on the altar of our Lord our God as it is written in the law. Now, so the, the second part they're going to support the work of God is to bring wood to the temples for the altar for the wood fires to to be able to continually burn there the third thing starting in verse 35 and through 36 it begins talking about first fruits and that they might bring the first fruits of our ground and first fruits of our fruit and all the trees in the house of the lord annually and bring to the house of our of our god the firstborn of our sons and our cattle and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks and is written in the law for the priest who are ministering in the house of our God. It's talking about the first fruits of everything. And the fourth thing here is in thir verse 37 and 38. We will also bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine, the oil to the priests and the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites. For the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. The priests, the sons of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the chambers where there are utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers and the singers. Thus we will not neglect the house of our God. In three ways there, 
are in four ways there. They're talking about a third of the shekel annually bringing in wood. They're going to commit to bringing wood to the temple. They're going to bring the first fruits and they're going to bring a tithe. Those are four things they're committing to. They're submitting themselves to God's word. They're separating themselves from the world and they're going to support God's work by doing these four things. And the, that, th- those, are, those are massive things if you think about it. You just, just think about it. And the condition that they're in, they're already complaining about how They're already complaining about how they are slaves of the people of Persia and how they have to give to the king and how they have to give to the empire, the kingdom, and all that kind of stuff. And here, they're making agreement with God that we are going to do these things. Okay, I don't don't want you to lose that part of it. They are, the, the, the last things they said at the end of their prayer was that we are slaves. We have to do this stuff for the kingdom. And yet we're going to commit, God, to do this stuff for you. That's pretty significant. We can't be blaming, well, the government comes after our taxes or, the, or you know, because I've got to, you know, pay the various things that I have to pay or anything like that to outside sources. Here they're committing themselves to doing that. So as we look at these passages, as we see these three things, what are some things that in our own lives that we might be able to address if we want to kind of follow the examples of Nehemiah and the people there in Israel? James gives us a good idea in chapter 1, verse James. Let me read this to you in chapter 1, verse 18 through 22. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be kind of a first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Here he's talking about the word implanted in our lives, about following the word of God and submitting to it, being doers of the word of God. About separating ourselves from all filthiness and wickedness and all that. It's it's a very close, it's very close to what the people in Nehemiah did back then 400 years or more than 400 years before Jesus came it was something that they did back then committing themselves to this and my question to us is what are we submitting ourselves to God's word do you submit yourselves to God and I'm not talking about having some you know I do 30 minutes quiet time in the morning listen I was in college I did like 30 minutes I did an hour I did all sorts of things on weekends I did long extended stuff did not do me one bit of good because I was learning it I was not submitting to it I was playing a game I had all sorts of knowledge it was not being fruitful in my life because I was not letting it I was not being obedient to it I was not keeping it I was not walking in it what part of submitting to God might we not be doing I would challenge you to do that. What part of this world are we not separating ourselves from? 
Here it's, you know, like I said back then, it's talking about relationships and marriages, mixed marriages and things like that. But in James' passage here, it talks about keeping away from all filthiness, setting it aside, and all that remains wicked. In other words, we just want to make sure that we're not involved in things that's going to pull us away from God as we are trying to pursue God. And, it, and, there's, and, and there's a wide variety of things that could be. It could be relationships. Let me, just, let me just, those of you who are single in this room, let me just encourage you. Do not get so wrapped up into all my friends are getting married. I need to find me a wife or I need to find me a husband or anything like that. I've been there. I've been there. I didn't get married until I was 32 years old. I am thankful that I waited for the woman that I got. She makes me better she challenges me. She is worth, she was more than worth waiting for. And I would encourage each of you that are single, I would encourage you, don't get so caught up into this marriage race, whether it's your friends around you or you feeling like, oh man, I'm about to graduate from college. I better hurry up and find me a wife. It's going to look better on my resume if I'm married or whatever. Don't, wor- don't sweat those things. I would encourage you to do number one here, submit to God's word. Become who God wants you to be. In all honesty, I, I, I believe this fully. I don't think Shannon would have given me two thoughts if she had met the guy that I was three years before we met, four years before we met. She wouldn't have given me a second thought. There came a time in my life when I, I was there. I was 22 and I became a Christian. I went back to college. And during that time, man, I was like dating everybody, trying to find me. The, it was, I was going to the BSU. I was going to the FCA. I was going to Campus Crusade. I was going to Wesley Foundation. All these religious groups trying to find me a girlfriend that might turn into Mrs. Hutton. And I was disappointed each time because as I began doing that, I, I was not satisfied. I was not happy. There was nothing about it that was bringing me joy. And what I found out was that God was calling me to something that I was ignoring. God was calling me to his service. And I was going, man, I don't want to do that, God. I don't want to be a missionary. I don't want to work in the church. I, don't, I want to work for ESPN. I want to be a field photographer, videographer on a football field. That's what I want to do in my life. And God would not let me go. And as I began to get right with God and I set aside those desires, and I became, I don't know if I like, I became okay with being single. I used this, I was satisfied being single. And I was satisfied with being single for the rest of my life if necessary. It came to that place when I was 28 and 29 years old. But it would not have been that way if I had not, because of some friends that were in my life, encouraged me and challenged me and actually slapped me upside my head a few times and said, pursue God. He will give you all you need. And it is so true. And that's the truth in business, in relationships. It doesn't matter. Pursue God fully. Let him transform all of us into the likeness of his son. And then the last thing there is supporting God's work with our time, with our talents, with our treasures. I read something many years ago that J.D. Greer, he was, a, when I first heard of him, he was just a young pastor in, in North Carolina and I started reading some stuff that uh, he had, I heard him speak at one conference and I started reading some of this stuff. There was something that he wrote once. He says, and, and the title of this article, you can look it up online if you want. The title of the article was something like, uh, 
do your offerings say Lord or leftovers? And when I read that article, it, 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 it wasn't a convicting thing to me because I had already come to a place where, you know, giving my money to God's work and all that was not an issue. I'd settled that years ago when I was in college. I'd accepted a challenge. I saw God work and I went, man, this is awesome. I don't know how I can do this. I'm going to try to do this. I did this and just God kept providing. It was just can't explain it. It was a God thing. But he asked, is your, is your offering Lord or leftovers? And, and, and the way I look at that is when I sit down, Shannon and I, when we sit down and we start, uh, we, we begin to determine at the beginning of the year, you know, what is our salary going to be? And we map out, this is what we're going to give. We don't even talk about our mortgage, our ta- taxes, our bills, or anything like that. What, what are we going to give? We, that, is, that is our saying, you know, you are Lord. And then everything else falls in place. And what ends up, being left over, if there is, is that's for entertainment or that's for vacations or that's for, you know, going out to eat or whatever. That's, that's for those things that are on the peripheral that you wish you could do. But what ends up happening to many of us, if we do not make him Lord, even of our finances, is that we begin, as we get through the month, as we get through the year, we begin to take away from what we want to give to God and do other things with it. And we begin to basically say, God, I'm going to give you my leftovers. It's not our first fruits. So I want to I challenge us. First, submit to God's word. Second, we are of this world, but we do not have to be in this world. We do not have to allow this world to influence us. We do not have to let this world change us. We allow God to change us in this world. We, are, we should thrive to be, we should strive to be more like a thermostat than a thermometer. We should try to set the culture around us and not read the culture around us. Does that make sense? Thermostat reads the temperature, right? I mean, thermometer reads the temperature. A thermostat sets the temperature. We want to be one that sets the temperature of the culture around us in order to bring glory to God. We don't want to read the temperature around us, the culture around us, to reflect what we are becoming in this world. We don't want to do that. We want to be more like a thermostat setting the temperature. And thirdly, thirdly, does our offering come across as Lord or leftovers? Let's pray. Father, as you as you speak to us this morning, I pray that we would hear from you and more than what I've had to say in this message. Lord, I pray that anything that was said or mentioned in this in this message this morning that was contrary to what you would have us to hear, that you would erase it from our memories, erase it from our thoughts. And I pray, Father, that you would bore deeply into our hearts and sow that word into our hearts so that we are transformed, are changed, are different than when we walked in this morning. Help us, Father, to submit to your word and help us to separate ourselves from the world around us and help us, Father, to make you Lord over our time and our talents and our treasures. In Christ's name we pray, amen.